0: Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favourite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another episode of Play It Forward, the worthy podcast. Today, I'll be having the honour of chatting to someone That has played a huge role personally and also when I chat to people in the play community has also contributed so much in the development of the practices, development of the education. People right across the board from teachers to play workers to early childhood teachers and parents. I'm talking about the phenomenal Peter Gray. A bit of background on Peter Gray. He is a researcher at Boston College, is a prolific writer, um, a contributor to Psychology Today. Um, conducts and publishes research in the field of this word. I can never get right. Neuroendocrinology, which we'll break that down. Developmental psychology and anthropology. I love that mix. A PhD in biological science, founding member of a wonderful non-for-profit called Let Grow. His own play includes bike, bike riding, skiing, gardening, and kayaking. Um, I believe Peter's superpower is his view on play from a biological and evolutionary standpoint. It's just that it puts it all in context so easily and so accessible. So thank you so much for joining us on play it forward. The phenomenal Peter Gray.
1: Thank you for having me here. Very happy to be here.
0: And, Coming to us live from Eastern Massachusetts. So, thank you for making the time to join us and our listeners and contribute. Let's kick things off. Um, As we do with all our guests, we get the ball rolling by asking the question of reflection Where did you play as a child?
1: Yeah, of course, it depends somewhat uh, at what. Point stage in my childhood, but but overall, I have to say, like most kids growing up in the 1950s, which was when I was a kid, I played outdoors, Uh, outdoors without adults around, you know, from the age of about five on, I was spending huge amounts of time outdoors playing with other kids. Um, When I was a little kid, most of the play was in the neighborhood, but by the time I was... uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, playing all over town with other kids. We moved a lot. And so in, in some sense, I think this uh, my own childhood, you know, in retrospect, gives me a, a somewhat of a grounding about children's play because we moved a lot from town to town, sometimes in little towns, sometimes in cities. And wherever we moved, the child, the kids played different games, different ways of playing. So... When I was um, when I was seven and eight and nine, we lived um, in a town called Sun Prairie, and just as you would gather, it's a very flat area <laughs> in Wisconsin, Midwest, uh, United States. And we played endlessly games of baseball. We flew kites. We flew. We made our own kites and flew them. Um, of course, baseball playing was this. Pickup up games. We would make up our own games. We did not have, they did not have the idea then that adults should be directing uh, children's play. The whole point of play for adults was to get the kids away from the adults, out of the house. <laughs> you know. So we were out there. Whenever school wasn't in session or it wasn't dark or we weren't asleep, we were pretty much outside playing. And then we moved to um, – at some point we moved to uh, – Town called Hill City, which in Minnesota, which is on a lake. And the lake became the playground uh, for my friends and for me. We would every day, we in the summer, we'd be on the lake swimming, boating. There was an old rickety boat that we probably belonged to somebody, but we pretended that it was a communal boat and we would go out <laughs> rowing. Uh, this was when I was 10, 11 years old, did an enormous amount of fishing. I was really. Hooked on fishing for a while, um, and uh, in the winter we'd ice skate on it and ski if there was a lot of snow on it. We'd play hockey on the lake, um, so the lake was a year-round uh, playground for me when I was that age. So, you know, that I could I could go on and on about I I could spend the entire hour <laughs> talking <laughs> about my my own play, but um, but I think you get the point. The my own play illustrates the way children throughout most of history have spent their time which is playing with other kids uh, away from adults and that's really uh, from an evolutionary point of view that's the way children played um, prior to agriculture that's the way hunter-gatherer children play that's the way children in in every part of the world where children are free where they're not uh, spending enormous amounts of time um, at uh, labour, <laughs> or they're not spending enormous amounts of time at school and school-like things, as unfortunately uh, children are today. Uh, but in places where children are, are free for a good part of the day, that's what they do. They play with other kids, and um, and they play independently of adults.
0: And it was around that time of the 1950s we started to see the... Disregarding or the reduction in play, um, from your research, what were those contributing factors to see that decline of play?
1: Yeah, it, it already—you're right. It already did begin even by the end of the 1950s. There was begin. There was beginning. It wasn't really until we got into about the 1970s that it became more clear that there was a decline. Um, and so I think that there are several factors that came into play. One of the factors, so, so as, you know, as I write about in some of my academic articles and in my book, Free to Learn, I've, um, I've documented, um, based on other people's research, not my own, the fact that there has been, um, A dramatic decline of play in the United States. I think the same is true in many other parts of the world, including Australia. Dramatic decline in free play among children, beginning around the mid-1950s and going on um, to the present time. Um, The historian Howard Chudikoff talks about, the in a book on uh, children and play in America, talks about um, the first half of the 20th century, uh, up to about 1955, as the golden age of children's play in America, because by the beginning of uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, uh, we had pretty much done away with intense child labor, uh, so children had quite a lot of free time. Um, uh, and so, uh, but and and children did have school. Compulsory education came about. Schooling came about in most states, also around the beginning of the 20th century. Some in some states earlier than that, but by the beginning of the 20th century, schooling was pretty much compulsory for children. But it wasn't nearly as uh, many hours as it is today. It, the school year was shorter. Uh, homework was not <laughs> being given. Uh, at least not in elementary school, uh, to some degree in high school. Uh, And this was still true when I was a kid in school. So kids had a lot of free time, but over time, beginning in the mid-century, mid-20th century, we began chipping away at that free time. And there's a number of ways in which the adult world did this. One is to increase uh, school. So the school year now in the United States, uh, on average, is five weeks longer than it was when I was a kid. We had a whole extra month in the summer and another week during the year of vacation from school. The school day is now longer. It was six hours a day in the 1950s. It's now closer to seven hours a day if you average it out. But the biggest change is uh, homework. Uh, as I said, when I was a kid, uh, in none of the schools that I attended was their homework for elementary school kids. Once in a while, a teacher might ask us to do something creative like write a poem or, uh, or a short story and bring it in the next day to share with the class. But we never did we take worksheets back and forth or carry books like kids do today. Uh, there was some homework once you went into secondary school, but not nearly what there is today. We mm-hmm. usually had study, a study hour period, and most of us could finish our homework then. So when we were not in school, we were free. And then we, we all, the other thing that's happened over this period of time is that we've developed all these school-like after-school activities or out-of-school activities for kids. So even when they're not in school, they're doing this, something that's a little bit like school, including even adult led sports so i'm not and i'm not against adult led sports but it's no substitute for play and once again this is something where adults are telling you what to do <laughs> they're yeah. setting the agenda you they're judging you they're de- you know it's like school in that sense they're determining who makes the starting team who doesn't who's going to bat first and second and third if it's if you're if we're talking about baseball which is the big sport when i was a kid um, and then we have other, you know, we have karate classes, we have people taking Chinese calligraphy, we have all these things. So we, we and this has been a gradual increase and we've reached the point where parents begin to think, well, if my kid is not um, doing all this homework and is not getting into all these extracurricular activities and doing a certain amount of volunteer work, which is, It's not really volunteer on the part of the kid. (laughs) The kid is being encouraged to do this because it'll help them on their resume at some point when they apply to college. So uh, the way I sometimes have put it is that over time, we've sort of turned childhood from what it's meant to be, which is a time of joyful play and exploration and freedom and wasting time and daydreaming getting into trouble, figuring out how to get out of trouble, all of these learning experiences that come from that into a time of resume building, doing stuff that can go uh, ultimately on a resume or it looks like it could go on a resume. And people, parents are thinking about that even even with little kids. They're already thinking, you know, how am I going to prepare my child to get into the best college uh, that I can get them into? They're already thinking that way instead of just saying, get out of the house and play. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and it's been a gradual change. If this change had occurred suddenly, you know, people would have rebelled. I mean, how could you how could you expect children to be spending that amount of time in school? That's crazy. How could you expect children not to be playing and running around? And um, But the fact that it occurred gradually,
0: yeah.
1: that the, it occurred gradually enough that people didn't really notice the change from one year to the next... Even from 10 years to the next, it wasn't a big enough change that people thought, oh, there's been suddenly we've ruined childhood. (laughs) So young parents today um, grew up without a lot of play. And so to them, it's no surprising, it's not distressing to them that their children don't have much opportunity to play.
0: Um, Yeah, and reflecting back, like, generations and I know some of your research goes into studying ancient or ancient I don't know if that's a classification but ancient civilizations and the amount of play going on in a tribe hunter gatherer sense Um, do you think that in the modern age with parents protecting their children and prescribing like all this schooling you think that's just a, a manifestation of the protection effect like once upon a time we protected our children from the dangers in from the tribe next door and we've still genetically got that protection effect and that's manifested into prioritising academics, prioritising, you know, grades for, there was a case I heard recently of a parent suing their five year five teacher for getting a B because it's going to affect their Ivy league in (laughs) application into college. So is that is so, so (coughs) summarise that very long winded question. Is our protection just a remnant of older times, wanting to protect our children?
1: Well, so the um, so just a little bit of a correction on what you just said. The 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 people that I've looked at, um, not directly but by virtue of uh, interviewing and surveying anthropologists, is um, hunter band hunter gatherer people. So these are people who. Um, live in small bands. Um, they were studied intensely in the in the middle to late uh, 20th century. It was a time when a lot of anthropologists were trekking out into remote parts of Africa and Asia and South America and other places and making contact with these people who had had a very little, if any, contact with um, what we think of as the Western world. Um, or, uh, and, and we're living pretty much as presumably they had been living over 10,000 years ago mm. is the assumption that um, anthropologists make. And what's interesting about all of these, first of all, they're not tribes, they're bands. And, and uh, there's a distinction. Tribes tend to be have uh, chiefs and big men, and they tend to be somewhat warlike, if not very warlike, These hunter gatherers were not at all that have been found. None of them are warlike. They're not they're not engaging in battles with other (laughs) with other groups. They don't even have weapons for war. They're they're very the, what the anthropologists say over and over again is how peaceful they are and um, and how playful they are mm-hmm. and that's the point that I want to emphasize. So what I learned from um, from uh, this study of um, uh, indirect study of these hunter-gatherer bands is for every one of the bands that um, I learned about and there were there were uh, in all uh, seven different hunter-gatherer bands on three different continents that I interviewed anthropologists who had been studying those bands. For, there are were, there were remarkable similarities across them, even though they're in very different parts of the world. Um, and one of the similarities is that they don't tell children what to do. They just let children play and explore, and they don't expect any real work from children. Uh, you know, they might ask a child to fetch some wood or something like that, but they won't enforce it if the child doesn't want to do it. Um, they believe that children learn by playing and exploring. and that research indicated that indeed that's the case. So the children, what the children are doing is they're they're playing with other children, largely away from adults. By the time they're four, they can go off from adults. The adults believe that by four years old, they have enough common sense that they're not gonna they're not gonna pick up a poisonous snake. They're not gonna go off and get lost in the jungle or the savanna or wherever they're they're living and get attacked by a tiger. They um they have common sense. The belief is that by around four years old you have common sense, and I might say that um, there's actually psychological evidence from developmental psychology that that's true. That something happens around four years old. Children internalize language and begin to think in words. They can remember rules. They can think logically. They can figure out whether something is dangerous or not. Um, Obviously, there's continued development in that. Hopefully, we get better as we get older (laughs) at these things. But but the other thing is they're playing in age-mixed groups, and so the older children are looking out for the younger children, too. And that, that seems to be the way the human species evolved in that kind of a world where children are learning by playing largely with other children. They're not segregated from the adults, and they see what the adults are doing. And if they ask adults for help, the adults are glad to help. But they don't intervene. They don't don't tell the children, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. There's no such thing. There's nothing even comparable to school among hunter-gatherer groups. So the, so it's interesting to me when I when I sort of compare that to my own childhood in the 1950s. I often say, well, I had two educations. I had school, mm. but then I also had a hunter gatherer education, as did all the other kids. You know, we spent a good deal of our time playing and exploring. With other children away from adults. We would incorporate things that we observed adults doing into our play, just as the hunter-gatherers did. And as a consequence of that, we were educating ourselves in some sense in the kinds of skills that are important to the world that we were growing up in. But sort of my um, theory that I gained from this research is that is that children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves, and the the process by which they do that involves a lot of play and exploration with other children.
0: So I imagine that during that free play, you're, you're turning on those switches in those bodies to activate these operating systems. And without that free play, without that freedom, is because when we reference free time, I think we're referencing freedom as a childhood and a very non-prescribed childhood that, That adultarian way is now we're prescribing medication, we're prescribing experiences, we're prescribing that child's whole being. So we're not knowing and we're not moving towards what that child needs at that specific time to meet their own needs. Who's more familiar with the child's needs than that child at that time? And a uniform and a sports field isn't going to change that.
1: That's, that's absolutely right, uh, and and it's interesting that the point, related to the point you just made about prescribing medications, <laughs> you know, over this uh, same period, this same 60-year period, really, that we've seen a continuous decline in children's play, we've seen a continuous, huge increase in uh, mental disorders among children, mm-hmm. uh, especially in anxiety and depression, and, and um one thing we know is that um, the rate of suicide—there uh, are several articles that um, have, have uh, shown this—the rate of suicide among school-age children in the United States is twice as high when school is in session as when school is not in session. Whoa. So there's one indication right there. Also the rate of mental health admissions is about twice as high. And uh, there was a study done uh, a few years ago by the American Psychological Association of um, uh, the, entitled Stress in America in which they determined in this large-scale survey that um, teenagers in school were the most stressed-out people in America – And when they asked them about the source of their stress, 83% cited school as a major source. Nothing else came close to that as uh, frequently cited as a source of their distress. Moreover, when they conducted this survey in the summer, when school wasn't in session, uh, only half as many said that they had been severely stressed during the past week, as who said they had been severely stressed when they were in school. So isn't this something? I mean, school is supposed to be a place of education. Mm-hmm. Um, education, I think, depends upon your feeling good about being in that place. You know, you're not you're not really open to to learning and new new thought adventures and creative thinking and so on and so forth if you're distressed. And yet school seems to be the most distressing place there is for children. Yeah. So what a you know what a contradiction to have an educational setting that is not that is making children unhappy rather than making them happy and and excited to learn so that's the situation that we are in um you know the other there there are other uh, causal factors that I I'm I'm laying a, a lot of it on school right now but um but as I've said, children are, and the views implied, children are prote- overprotected um, by their parents. I don't blame the parents. As a society, we're constantly telling parents how dangerous it is out there. We're regarding parents as negligent if they're kind of not watching their kids all the time. And so one of the consequences of that is kids are not going out uh, to play on their own. They're not getting into the kinds of adventures and engaging in the sorts of risky play which helps people develop resilience and courage and confidence and uh, the sense that I can handle the world because I've done it in my play. That's part of the major purpose of play. And if we deprive children of that opportunity, we're always solving their problems for them. Mm. They, don't, they don't learn that they can solve the problems for themselves, and they grow up uh, worried about how you know, something could happen any time. And that's the, um, that's the world that we are raising children in right
0: now. Yeah. To go back to that um, data on the high school students and stressed out when school is on, how much of a contributor do you think that is that the lack of play in the early years has contributed to the lack of tools to deal with, not just the academic side, but the social side?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely the lack of play. Play is how children learn to um, get along with one another. And when I say play, I really mean children's self-directed play. I don't call it play if an adult is running the show. So when children are playing together, think of all their learning. Uh, let me give an example. So when I, I mentioned at the beginning that as a kid, as a young kid, um, I played endlessly at baseball. And so we we would go to the... Vacant lot, and uh, there'd be a bunch of kids there of various ages, various abilities. Um, I was one of the little ones then, and um, and there's no manicured field. You have to create the field. You have to figure out how you're going to lay down the bases. You have to choose up sides. You have to try to make the sides fair. You know, there might be windows, uh, houses with windows on one side of the field, and so you make a rule. You know, you any bat you bat it in that direction, it's automatic out. Maybe a busy street and another side, um, so you've got another rule. You make a rule that, you know, the big kids, uh, the real, the ones who can really whack it far, have to bat left-handed if they're right-handed with their non-dominant hand, uh, just one arm. You make all these ground rules, and of course, everybody pitches softly to the little kids. So think of all that's being learned that's so much more important than baseball. You're learning how to negotiate. You're learning how to please your playmates, including those on the other team, because if you don't please them, they'll quit. They'll go home. Nobody's Mm -hmm. making them be there. So you're learning how to keep uh, other people happy while you yourself are also keeping yourself happy. Well, it's hardly a more important skill than that. If you, yeah. if you can't do that, you can't have a good marriage, you can't have real friends, you can't have uh, good work partners. And children are practicing that all the time in social play when there's no adults around, Because and that's when they have to figure out how to get along with one another, how to negotiate.
0: Yeah, and that just sounds like the, the framing to learn empathy. Uh, that's what you're summarising there and we're seeing a huge decline in empathy as I read your a, a number of your articles about the decline of empathy. And um, that leads me into my next area which I think it gives really good framing for people to understand where children are at now is the internal and external locus of control. Um, could you talk to that a bit for our listeners in the framing of how to understand right. it and apply it to their children?
1: Right. So, um, internal locus of control refers to um, the question of whether you feel that you are in control of your own life. Do you do, are you in are you know, to put it in the extreme, are you the in charge of your own fate? Do you run your own life versus To what degree do you feel you are sort of a victim of circumstances, of powerful other people, of fate, of things that you can't control? Now, the truth of the matter is we're all somewhere in the middle of that. Now, none of us are at the extreme. The extreme is not possible in either direction. To some degree, we're in control. We feel in control. To some degree, things happen that we can't control and so on. But uh, it turns out that the feeling, the belief that you are in control is a, is a, um, is a healthy belief. Uh, even if it's a belief that goes beyond the reality, it's good to believe you're in control because when you believe that, then you do attempt to assert control. You take more control of your life. If you believe you're not in control, then it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, there's not much I can do anyway, you know, so things just happen that way. So there's a test. Uh, The the version for adults is called Rotter's internal-external locus of control scale, but there's a version of this for school-aged children, and it basically is measuring to what degree do you feel you're in control of your own life versus to what degree do you feel that, um, that you are being controlled, you are controlled, you are dependent upon, upon the circumstance and powerful other people and so on. Now, uh, ever since this test began to be given to school-age children, uh, beginning around the 1960s, the internal locus of control, the sense of being in control of my own life has been going down and external locus of control going up. They're sort of reciprocals of one another. And I think that's part of the, that's part of the explanation for the increased anxiety and depression. So one thing we know about locus of control is that people who don't have a strong internal locus of control are far more likely to become depressed or anxious at some point in their lives than people who have a strong internal locus of control. Again, not surprising, because if you don't believe you can control the world out there, the world is pretty scary. Anything can happen at any time, and there's nothing you can do about it. On the other hand, if you think, I can solve problems, you're not so worried about the world, and, and you're, you're less likely to be anxious, and you're less likely to be depressed, to just give up and say, oh, There's nothing I can do. I'm no good. And the world stinks. So that's the um, that's the the rationale. Now, why would locus of control be going down among uh, young people over the decades? And to me, there's no surprise to that. Again, if to develop an internal locus of control, you've got to have experience being in control. And we've pretty much taken that experience away from children. We're, we're pretty much putting them into situations where they're more or less always being controlled. They're always being told what to do. There's always some adult around to solve their problem. You know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't want to say it's always or that it, this is true for every single child. Um, but, but overall, we have taken the opportunities for children to control themselves gradually away from them. And where do children have the most control? It's in play. The The primary defining feature of play in my definition of play is that play is an activity that is initiated and directed by the children themselves. So children is that place. I mean, play is that place where children are constantly in control and practicing being in control. And I think that's how uh, largely how they develop a strong internal locus of control, which protects them from anxiety and depression as, as they grow older. It's a
0: mind-blowing <laughs> framing there. And it's just, once again, when we think about these big grand things we have to do to create change and help children. Um, so it, is this um, prescribing of play from adults in the form of right. the places they play affecting them? as well.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not talking about where adults are controlling the play. You're talking about where the adults determine where the children play and the adults largely take them to that place to play. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There's research um, done. I did a little review of such research a year or two ago. Uh, There's research that has been done that compares um, children... Uh, who are playing in the neighborhood like children used to play, just going outdoors and seeing the other kids in the neighborhood and playing neighborhood. Uh, and in, I forget where this study was done, I'm thinking of a particular study. It was in some European country. And at least at the time that this study was done, there were some neighborhoods. Where because there wasn't much traffic, um, the children were still allowed to play uh, in the neighborhood without adults going out and watching them. So the kids would run out and they'd play with their friends. And there was and there was another neighborhood in, in same sort of social economic class of kids, uh, but busier street where it was the pa- the 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 parents didn't allow the children to go out and play because they were afraid of traffic and they were probably afraid of other things as well. And um, so this study was a comparison of the kinds of play that occurred and what really happened. Now, in the in the place where the kids were not being allowed to go out and play on their own, the parents tried to compensate by taking the children to the playgrounds in the park. And uh, But the reality was that the parents only have a certain amount of patience to be there and so they're not there all day long, they're not there all sat all weekends long, they're not there until it gets dark and they, you know, they they take the kids for maybe a half an hour, maybe even an hour and then they take the kids home. The other thing that happens when you go to that playground in the park is what there is there to play with. You know, you can there's only so much you can do, and we've made, I, I, I don't know what the playgrounds there in that country were at the time this study was done, but in the United States, the playgrounds have made, been made so tame that no not, not much thrill, anything that any kind of playground equipment that in the past would have been thrilling to play on is now regarded as dangerous and would have been removed. So the slide is really short, the, the swings, they've taken away teeter-totters and merry-go-rounds and high, high high, bars and those kinds of things because, um, you know, somebody got hurt at it, on at it one time and so they've decided it's dangerous. So the result is that there's not much for the kids to do, and moreover, their friends aren't there, because it's not that the parents get together with everybody in the neighborhood and they all go at the same time. So if there are other kids there, they're strangers, you know, and it it takes a while to get to know other kids to really feel comfortable to play with them and to figure out ways to play and so you so so the quality not only was the quantity of play much less in the park, but the quality of play was much less than the kids in the neighborhood. The kids in the neighborhood could play at anything they want. They they climb trees if they if they wanted to climb trees on whoever's lawn had a tree. But they would also bring things out from indoors. They'd bring out stuff to play with as the mood struck them. So, you know, they might bring out woods and uh, wood and a hammer and nail and a saw and start building something, or they might bring out a go-kart and run a go-kart down the street. So the, the quality of play, the variety of play and the social interaction in play, as well as the total amount of play was much more for the kids who were just free to play in the neighborhood than it was for the kids who were being taken routinely to the park to play by their parents.
0: And the um, big thing there is, like, I'm sure that the children in the neighborhood had that same thing you did via baseball, is that multi-age play.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. So there would be you, – when you're playing in the neighborhood, you're playing with whatever kids are in the neighborhood, mm. you know, and and they're not all the same age. And it's um, another thing I've studied and written a lot about, that age-mixed play is much um, – it is uh, is more creative, less uh, generally less competitive, more nurturing. Um, children learn more when they're playing across ages because the older younger children are kind of being boosted up, boosted up to higher levels of activity by the older children, and the older children are playing in more creative ways as they find ways to bring the younger children into it, while at the same time making the play challenging for themselves. So. You know, when you see kids playing across ages, you see all kinds of things like piggyback, you know, horseback riding and, and and funny kinds of fights where the little kids are on the shoulders of the bigger kids. If they're playing a game, some kind of formal game, they figure out some way that the older kids are self-handicapping to make make things even, and by self-handicapping, they're still challenging themselves. So, um, so I, I think that's the other the other restriction we've put on children. We tend to segregate children by age, not only in school nowadays, but even when they're out of school. We tend to we, when we put them into clubs or adult-directed activities, we tend to segregate them by age. And when we do that, that we're depriving them of interacting with those other kids from whom they have the most to learn. Yep. Yeah. Um, So
0: hypothetically, this is a challenge. Well, it's not too hypothetical. It's a challenge I come up against all the time in creating play environments for children um, and parents wanting the fences in between the ages. So what would you say to those parents that want the fences and the toddlers fenced off from the slightly older children?
1: Yeah, I... I I wish they could. Um, I wish they could watch and see how beautifully older children and younger children interact with one another. I think that some people are afraid that the older children are going to bully the younger children or hurt the younger children in some way, or that maybe the foul language that the older children are using is is going to corrupt the younger children in some way. But, you know, I've observed uh, children playing across age at um, my study of cross age uh, mixed age play is at a school called the Sudbury Valley School um, here in Massachusetts, where there are children from age four on through high school age, so basically four to 18. Uh, who are never segregated from one another. They can interact with one another as much as they want all day long, and they have pretty much all day long to play and explore because the philosophy of the school is that's how children learn. And what I've observed, and uh, there's other research um, of a different sort uh, with the same general results, is that older children are actually much nicer when they're around younger children than they are when they're not. And they're nicer not only to the younger children, but even to themselves. I- I'm convinced that there's something about the presence of little kids that brings out the nurturing instinct in older kids. And so older kids love to love to uh, play with younger kids and play with them in ways that are stretching their ability and that are uh, in some sense caretaking. That doesn't mean they don't tease them, they'll tease them but they'll tease them generally in a, in a good natured way and the little kids understand that. And the little kids love to be part of the play of, of the bigger kids. Um, so we're really depriving uh, both the older kids and the younger kids of um, opportunities. Um, you know, it, it, I, think, I think if most people think back to their own childhood and especially if it was a childhood where you engaged in a lot of age mixed play, Think of how much you learned from the older kids, how much, you know, those older kids that, wow, those were those were the people that you really admired, more so than adults. I mean, adults, if you're four or five or six years old, adults are kind of in a different world. You know, they do all kinds of things that you can't really quite dream of doing. But if you're four or five, six years old, those eight, nine, ten-year-olds, you feel like, oh, you know, I see them doing that. I bet I could do that. And that stretches you to, um, to do things that are, of, um, that are maybe a little more challenging than what you would have been doing if you were just playing with other kids your own age.
0: And another one I've just popped to mind about these because I'm, I'm just thinking of those roadblocks we come up against and like the priority of academics over play. But in your words, why is play importance for academics
1: well yeah i mean so for, so the first uh, in order to answer that i have to sort of address this funny question of what is academics this is a big yeah. word today and whenever i use this word in relationship to little children i put it in quotes because i think it's just silly to talk about academics with little kids oh, okay. <laughs> so absolutely but i agree I, what it, What it means, what it, what people mean by it, is uh, learning uh, to read and learning to add numbers and do things with numbers. And uh, even little kids these days are being drilled in this stuff. And so you're you're teaching little children the sounds of the letters, and you're trying to get them prepared for. Even in the United States, it used to be that kindergarten was just a place for play, and you started teaching reading and. And a little bit of arithmetic in first grade. Um, now people are teaching reading and arithmetic in kindergarten. And in preschool, they're starting to teach reading and arithmetic in order to cha- in order to train them, get them ready for kindergarten. My gosh, you know, it used to be kindergarten was a place to play just to get used to the idea of being with other kids and away from home. And an opportunity to play with a bunch of other kids. Um, It was a great invention, kindergarten, a garden for play, really a garden for children. But now it's become essentially first grade, a place for a place for so-called academic training. I have um, reviewed research. One of my blog posts uh, is uh, devoted to this that looks at the long-term consequence of such early academic training. Um, it turns out that there are a number of good studies that have been done where you had comparable groups of children, some of them in academic preschools or kindergartens, depending on which study it was, and some of them in just pure play preschools and kindergartens. And then they would follow up the children for a few years as they went into elementary school and see what the consequences of being in one or the other of those kinds of preschools or kindergartens were. And the result of every study that I've been able to find that goes at least through third grade is that by third grade, the kids who were in the play uh, kindergarten or preschool are now doing better even academically, not just doing better socially and emotionally, which you would expect, but even academically they're doing better. I think they're doing better academically partly because they're doing better socially and emotionally, but I also think they're doing academically better because their mind hasn't been... Um, distorted by that early academic training. When you are teaching kids this stuff, before they have an intellectual reason to know it or a motivation to know it or an intellectual foundation, if you're teaching kids to read who aren't interested in reading, who don't have a particular reason for reading that they're aware of... Uh, what, they're do- what you're doing is you're training them through a set of procedures. They're learning, they're feeding it back, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and they pass the test. But that doesn't really mean they understand what they're doing. That doesn't really mean they're incorporating it in a way that is really meaningful to them. Even more so with numbers. You're teaching kids to add numbers, let's say, who don't really have much of a sense of what numbers are for in the real world. But well, when you're playing games, when you're just playing with other kids or when you're also when you're just around the house helping out your mom or dad, you're probably dealing with numbers in a real way. You're, you might be cutting recipes in half. You might be playing games that involve adding up the score or marking along a certain distance along a, along a pathway when you shake the dice. So you're getting a sense of what numbers are, what they mean, and by and in that way, you sort of develop the intellectual foundation that then makes mathematics interesting and makes it meaningful. And now you are interested in how to add or how to subtract or how to calculate averages. And if you wait until that happens, then the kids learn it very quickly. They don't have to go through that really slow procedure. And the other – regarding reading, you know – I think uh, most kids like to be read to. I've run across a few kids who don't, but most kids love to be read to. And probably the most important thing you can do to prepare your child for reading is to read to them a lot and to read yourself a lot. So kids are growing up knowing that, hey, there's some value in reading. These are really fascinating stories, and at some point they'll want to read them to themselves. And then they'll really want to know how to read. And, And there's an enormous difference between a kid of any age, who wants to learn something versus a kid who's just being forced to learn it um, despite uh, their not wanting to do it. The, the one who wants to learn it can learn it very quickly and learns it in a way that's meaningful and memorable. But if we mm. try to force kids to learn things that they don't want to learn, we're really wasting our time and wasting their time. And, and also, in fact, we'll doing worse than wasting because we're, we're, as I said, we may be setting the conditions where ultimately this will hinder their ability to really learn it.
0: Yeah, and then the the hindrance has got to be there and acknowledged around um, the lack of time in thinking in a creative way that sets them up yeah. and, and direct correlation with the reduction in creative thinking that we're seeing in children now.
1: Yes. Well, that is another thing that has happened. And again, no surprise. Um, There was a study a few years ago um, by a a researcher in the United States who um, looked at uh, the scores on um, a standard uh, test of creativity. It sounds like like a contradiction in terms. How could you have a standard test of creativity? (laughs) But there actually is a valid test of creativity, uh, Torrance's tests of creative thinking. And the reason we know they're valid is that these have now been, this test has now been given, this is actually a battery of tests, have been given to school-age children at all grade levels uh, now for several decades. And the, what the research shows is those kids who score high on this test are far more likely to go on to do truly creative things as adults than those kids who score lower on the test. By creative things, I mean things like um, inventing new products or starting new companies or writing novels or re- or you know the whole the whole range of things that we guard we regard as valuable and creative contributions to the culture. This test is a better predictor of that than i q is better way better predictor than grades in school better predictor than teachers' projections of who's going to be creative in adulthood or even peer projections of who will be creative in adulthood best predictor we have. And uh, so a few years ago, uh, this researcher looked at the scores on this test uh, over decades and found that ever since uh, the mid-1980s, there has been a continuous decline in the scores on these tests at every grade level in school. Um, and, uh, and the decline has been rather large, um, such that at least on one of the scales, the scale that assesses ability to take an idea and elaborate on it in a creative way, um, the ability to do that has declined to such a degree that the person who is average today would have been at the 15th percentile uh, in 1985. In other words, 85% of people would be doing – at that time would be doing better than the average person today. So that's a big decline, and it's a decline at a time when, you know, Lord knows we need creative people now more than we ever have before. You know, All the non-creative stuff is – been taken over by robots and and search engines. We don't Mm -hmm. need people who can do routine standard stuff. We don't need people who can memorize information. (laughs) We don't need people who can crunch numbers. We need people who can you know who can ask questions that haven't been asked and find answers to questions that nobody else has found. We need people who can think out of the box, and and um, businesses are looking for such people. And we're in an age where, where increasingly, you kind of have to be an entrepreneur. You have to sort of figure out your own ways of making a living. You have to find some new niche for yourself. You have to, you have to be creative more and more in this world. You know. It, In the world that um, of my parents, um, you know, my father had a union job, and uh, as long as that job was in existence and the union protected him, he would be doing the same thing all his life. That world doesn't exist anymore. We need people who are flexible, who are creative, and yet our schools are producing fewer of those people. Our schools have gone in the exact wrong direction for our culture. So we're teaching all the more people to do stuff by rote when we don't need people to do stuff by rote.
0: <laughs> no. And I love the framing from a gentleman, I'm not sure you know, i um, sure you would, um, Tom Hartman, who wrote the book um, Surviving as a Hunter in a Farmer's World, which uh-huh. is the framing of our, he believes it as our, Um, genetic remnants as hunters to be hyper alert. And he speaks a lot in the context of ADD and it's a remnants of our evolution to be hyper alert and we're creating the entrepreneurs of the world. But then our whole structure for education tends to be a farmer. We're trying to create people that are like the data, the data entry we sit, we observe, but we also need those hunters on the forefront and the hunter being creative as well and a problem solver. I, I love that framing it speaks to. Is there is there truth from – because you studied at depth in anthropology. Is there is that an accurate idea to think that there's remnants <coughs> of hunters in us now and that's the reason for that type of thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, of, of course, we um, – are- biologically, we're all hunter-gatherers. We're, mm. You know, we, the human species uh, has um, existed for hundreds of thousands of years, um, depending on when you consider it somewhat arbitrarily when you say we're human. You, we could say for millions of years or we could say a few hundred mm. thousand years, depending on where your point is. But, but throughout uh, all that period of time, we didn't have farming. We were all hunters. Mm. <laughs> we were yeah, all exactly. hunter-gatherers. And uh, farming came about about a mere 10,000 years ago. Now that might sound historically like a long period of time, but from a point of view of biological evolution, that's just a speck of time. Our brains would have changed very little in that period of time. So we all come into the world kind of as hunter-gatherers, and that's why children come into the world with this strong drive to play and explore with other children away from adults. That's what hunter-gatherers did, and that's how they learned what they needed to learn. That's why we all want to be creative. That's why we all want to take charge of our own lives. That's what hunter-gatherers do. And then we went through, historically, we went through this sort of awful period of human history. It started with agriculture, which Mm -hmm. could or could not be awful, depending on the situation. But once you've got agriculture, you're sort of tied to the land. And you are beholden on the person who owns the land, right? So once the land is kind of owned by everybody, I mean hunter-gatherers don't own land, nobody owns anything, so they're pretty egalitarian in their, rela- their in their relationships with one another. But once you've got farming, you own land and the and, and this the economic situation changes drastically. so now you have you have hierarchical organization. the people who own the land are in charge and you're dependent upon them. And moreover, uh, whereas hunting and gathering are kind of thrilling. I mean, this is what we do when we go on a picnic, right? Or people love to to gather berries, and they love to. And of course, hunting is still a big sport for many people. And whether you're hunting with a gun or with a camera, you know, it's still hunting. It's still this venture of fi- of tracking and finding finding game in the in the wild and identifying them and so on. That that's thrilling, and it's and it's difficult. It's it is um, mentally and physically difficult that kind of life. But it's not time-consuming. So hunter-gatherers have lots of free time, and their and what and what we call their work. They don't even have a word for work. They don't they don't regard that as work in the sense of toil. They don't have they if they have a word for work it's what those other people do it's what those people building the road outside of the jungle are doing or what the people working in the in the mines are doing they don't regard it as work so that so so that's the um, and and I think even today people ha- who have the kind of job that's very creative where you're in charge of what you're doing and there's a lot of different ways to do it I think they, those are the people who say, my work is really play. I love my work. It's it's difficult, but I really love it because every day is different. Farmers, on the other hand, once you're farming, once you know how to farm, it's a matter of following the rules. It's a matter of routine. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't want to say there's no creative aspect to farming, but there's a lot of just plain labor that's involved, um, uh, you know, uh tilling the ground keeping out the weeds planting the seeds you know harvesting um, and this is labor that can be done by children and so once you've got far farming communities and also you tend to have bigger families once you've got farming communities because you've got more food and you can afford to have bigger families but then now that they've got bigger families you've got to put those children to work <laughs> To help support the younger children as they're coming along, and um, and then you get this situation of uh, hierarchy, and that's where that's where you get the idea that the man who owns the land is the boss of his wife and all of his children, and the children mm-hmm. grow up kind of under the thumb of this person, and that's the history of Western civilization that we're kind of coming out of now, but that's the that's what we that's what we went into. Now, that, that is not natural from an evolutionary point of view. Natural from an evolutionary point of view is the situation that hunter-gatherers are in. Obviously, it doesn't run so counter to our human nature that we can't do it, but it is not, It you know, so so we began with a, after a, agriculture, and especially as we went on to feudalism and then the Industrial Revolution, where children are being made to work. We've got to stop them from playing and force them to work. And the common way to do that is to beat them if they're not working. So now free will, which was valued among the hunter-gatherers, becomes sort of um, the enemy. It becomes the playground of the devil. It has to be beaten out of children. And you know, fortunately, we're now coming out of that. We're beginning to come out of that. We began to come out of that about 100 years ago. Uh, uh, but that's the... Uh, but that's the history, and it's within that history that our that our coercive schools developed. the The earliest schools that are of the same model that we have today, it was very clear that the primary purpose of schooling was to was to make children obedient, and that meant suppressing their play so mm-hmm. that they would do what they're told to do. Yeah.
0: Um, at this point in our evolution, what are your what are you feeling most optimistic about, knowing the history and then kind of projecting where we're going at this present point in time? What excites you?
1: Well, um, there are a few things that excite me. One of, one of them is that I'm seeing an increasing number of families that are choosing to opt out of the standard way of uh, that what's become the standard way of raising children. So for one thing in the United States, homeschooling is growing by leaps and bounds. And the reason for that is that it's become so obvious to some families that school has reached the point where it's harming their children, that they have made the decision to take their children out of school and homeschool the children. And once they're homeschooling the children, they may start off believing that they're just going to give the same curriculum at home, but do it in a nicer way (laughs) than at school. But once they start doing it, they begin to realize how much initiative the children have and how much more the children learn when they're learning what they want to learn. And so among the homeschoolers, not only are more people homeschooling, but an ever-growing number of homeschoolers are homeschooling by the method called unschooling which is to allow the children to take charge of their own learning allow them to play and explore and learn in that way and you support the, the adults' role is to support it and to help find the conditions that will support it you know help connect the child to the community in ways that the child is needs the connection to the community to learn beyond the home it, homeschooling is somewhat of a misnomer it's not just learning at home but it's learning in the community is learning it's learning through life and so there's a growth in that. I have a I have a belief that uh, once there's a once we've reached some critical number of people doing it, there will be a groundswell of movement, and then the schools will kind of empty out unless they change, unless they say, oh, you know, if we want to if we want to continue this enterprise of uh, of public schooling. Uh, at uh, institutions like this and we want people to, to not take their kids out of it, we've got to listen to what people want and what the children want and we've got to change what we're doing. So to me, that's probably the greatest source of hope. Um, I also think there are other things. There are some things that are happening within schools. Um, at the Let Grow uh, organization, that I, a nonprofit that I'm um, one of the board members of, we're working with schools to bring more play into the schools, to reduce homework, to uh, make classes more playful. We're, we're, we've provided some ways of um, working with teachers to do this, including uh, for some schools have adopted an hour of um, free play uh, at least once a week where all the children in the school, age-mixed groups, kindergarten through fifth grade, so basically age five through 10 or 11, all playing together. Uh, and the, uh, and it's not just the outdoor playground, the gymnasium, the art room, the hallways, uh, pretty much uh, large parts of the school are just opened up for free play. And, um, and we have instructed the principals to instruct the teachers who monitor this to think of themselves not as teachers when this is occurring, but just as sort of like lifeguards on a beach, let the kids solve their own problems and i've been I've even been surprised at how well this is working out and how this how the children the even the teachers, the principals, and the parents are enjoying this. so I think there's a beginning. I think that schools are have begun to get the message that um, their children that the children will learn more if they're happier and that the children need more play and that school can be a place for this to happen. School can be a place for play.
0: And on that optimistic, very in, empowering space, um, thank you so much for joining us. Where, where would any messages that you would like to get out there to our listeners and where they can find some content, where they can um, head to next after <coughs> listening to this podcast? <laughs>
1: Well, of course, I can't help but say that you know most of my ideas are uh, in my book, Free to Learn, and uh, so that's one place to 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 look. I write, as you mentioned before, I write a blog for Psychology Today. You can just Google Peter Gray, Psychology Today, and you will find the blog. And I've got now close to 200 essays um, that are mostly research-based essays that sort of reviews of. Literature making of research making various kinds of points along the line that I've been hinting at here. And I would also suggest, uh, if you're interested, go to the uh, Let Grow website. Uh, There are exercises for children, there are, um, and you can find uh, Lenore Scanese, who's my primary colleague there, who's really the president of Let Grow and the primary initiator of the organization. wrote a book called Free-Range Kids a number of years ago. Uh, She has a blog there, and she's um, very smart, very funny, uh, and um, very much involved in the movement to bring more independence and freedom to children's lives. So those are some places that um, people might look. Brilliant. And
0: those Psychology Today articles, if anyone picks up my phone and looks at my open windows on the Internet, you will see... Every Second Window is a Psychology degree, a Psychology Today article that I intend to read that is on the reading list. So thanks for keeping me topped up on my reading as well. But um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you on behalf of all our listeners. It's been beautiful to chat to you. Thank you for your work and dedication in the field. And, yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, well, thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you for joining us on a Play It Forward worthy podcast that was inspiring in extremely knowledgeable Peter Gray. His TED talk, research and books have all links in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. As a little giveaway, if you like and rate this podcast, we'll be sending out one of his books to a lucky listener. So remember to rate this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.